What we've been doing this semester in RUF is we've been going through the Old Testament book of Judges. And we've said every single week at, uh, at RUF that the book of Judges is a series of true stories that are written to God's people with the intent of showing them God's grace and therefore to call them to faith and obedience. And now tonight we're going to do something a little bit differently because obviously the passage that you have in front of you is long. And what we normally do is read the passage and then we look at it together. But what we're going to do is we're going to read the passage and all sort of make some comments as we go. Because there's lots of weird names and weird places. And if we just read it straight through, my fear is that it won't make sense to any of you. So we're going to do that as we go. And then when we're done reading it, uh, we'll discuss it together. Okay? So let's look at Judges chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Let me pray, and then we'll we'll look at it. Father, if you would be merciful in these uh, next few moments, we would ask that you would be pleased to teach us, to uh, open up our eyes and to unclog our ears, because you know and we know that we don't have any hope of understanding your word apart from your spirit. So would you please now send your spirit and uh, teach us, and that would be our request, and that would be our prayer, and we would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Okay, pause there. Here, we, here again we see the spiritual relapse of the people of Israel. Uh, they rebel against God, and so God hands them over to this foreign army. Uh, and the, the, the commander of this army is, uh, or the king of the army is Jabin. But really the main bad guy of the story is Sisera. He's like this local mercenary hitman that the king hired out to lead his army. So Sisera is the main bad guy. And you should know in Judges chapter 5, which we're not going to read, it's a poetic commentary on chapter 4. And so you get little insights of chapter 5 that kind of help you understand chapter 4 a little bit better. And there we we get some more info on this Sisera character. There we find out that Sisera is a very terrible person. Uh, He's actually a a rapist. It says when he would go into battle, he would conquer another army, and he would take women as sex slaves, two or three at a time. On top of him being uh, a horrific person, he has 900 iron chariots at his disposal, which at this point in the world, this was like cutting-edge technology. This was like basically having tanks, and the Israelites have slingshots. So here's the setup of the story, wicked, terrible oppressor with this enormous, you know, sophisticated army, and the Israelites cry out for help. Verse 4, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes settled. So now we're introduced to Deborah, who is this female prophet. And a prophet is basically someone who speaks God's word on behalf of God. And so uh, it says that she's also, you know, it's kind of unclear. But when it says that she held court, don't picture her as like some ancient Judge Judy where people would come to her and have like their civil disputes settled. They're coming to her to want to know what is the judgment on what's going to happen. Will God save us? Will this oppression end? 
That's the question. Verse 6. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Okay, so here Deborah recruits this dude named Barak and says, what I want you to do, here's the divine game plan from God. Get 10,000 soldiers and go camp on a mountain. And I'm going to lure to you, bring to you Sisera and his tanks and his bigger army. And since you're on top of a mountain, uh, there's no way for you to escape. Sounds like a suicide mission. Let's keep going. And so Barak says to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with them. So, okay, Barak is not thrilled about this game plan. He's being called basically into a suicide mission. He says, uh, I want you to join me. Why? Because Deborah has the words of God, and so he wants her there with him. And, and, and the translation that I just read is a little misleading because it looks like she's punishing him for being a wimp. Like saying, oh, because you want me to go with you and hold your hand, uh, the honor's not going to be yours. But that's not really what she's getting at. What she's basically doing is making a prediction and saying, on the way that you go, the, the, the way that you will know that God is behind this is when you see Sisera fall to a woman. When he falls, uh, and, and the glory will go to a woman and not to you. So let's keep going. Verse 11. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree of Za'ananim near Kadesh. Okay, this is the most random verse in this whole story. Because now we're, we're talking about this dude named Heber, the Kenite, and he moved away from his family, and now he's posted up in this place called Kadesh. Hold on to that detail. Verse 12, when they, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River. Now, this is a scene like Lord of the Rings. You've got this huge sea of people now up on this mountain, Barak and his, his troops, and you've got this bigger you know, army trudging up with like tanks and I'm picturing trolls and orcs in them as well. And so the suspense is building. What's going to happen? Verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by his 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the troops of Sisera fell by the sword, and not a man was left. Now, this doesn't really tell you what happened, but in chapter 5 it does. It says that God let this big, huge storm come by, and it rained, and the river rose. And as a result, the field, the valley, was very muddy and very watery, and so all the chariots were now rendered obsolete. So Barak and his army come down, wipe out all the Canaanites, and Sisera, the evil general guy, he knows that the battle's over, he's lost, and so he starts running, and Barak starts chasing him. Okay, verse 17. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, 
the wife of Haber, the Cainite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Haber, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. And so he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. Okay, remember that random detail verse in verse 11? Here's where this comes into play. Because Haber the Kenite had moved away from his people long ago, he was now living in this land, and he had struck up this deal with Jabin and Sisera, the bad guys. So the the bad guys and this family are on good terms. So when Sisera comes running, looking for a place to hide from Barak, he ducks into the tent of of jail. She says, you know, come on in. We're on good terms. I'm not an Israelite. My people aren't Israelites. And so here he comes in. Verse 19. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. And if someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But jail, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Why did she do that? Why did she take this dude out? She wasn't an Israelite. She didn't have any political reason. She knew what kind of a man Sisera was, and she probably may have had family or friends that were raped or killed by this man, and so she wanted him dead. And so she brings him in, and drives a tent spike, which would have been like, you know, a railroad spike, through his face, and he dies. Verse 22. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. This is God's word. When you get to the New Testament, it's interesting because in the book of Hebrews, there's a chapter in there, what most people call the Hall of Faith. It's in chapter 11, and it basically catalogs all of the Old Testament celebrities that exhibited this great faith. And our man Barak makes the list. He's in the Hall of Faith. And so what we're going to do for the rest of the night is I just want to zero in and focus on uh, the person of Barak and, and ask the question, why is he in there? Why is he in the Hall of Faith? Because by looking at him, we really get at answering this question of what faith is. Because in my opinion, that's a very confusing topic for college students. What is faith? Is it just wishful thinking? Is it just this irrational leap into the dark? What is it? And I want to go about answering that question of what is faith by looking at faith from three different angles. I want to look at the act of faith, the feel of faith, and then the object of faith. So the act, the feel, and the object. First, what is the act of faith? Well, uh, as we mentioned ago, Deborah was a prophet, someone who spoke God's word on God's behalf. And in verse 6, she summons Barak to him and speaks God's word to him. And as you remember, the word that she says is, I want you to go, take some soldiers and go up on a mountain, and I'm going to lure a much bigger, stronger army to you. And obviously, Barak is not very um, thrilled about this idea. And so uh, in verse 8, you see his response. God's word comes to him and tells him something that he needs to do that he doesn't really want to do. But what happens? As the story unfolds, he obeys. 
He actually obeys God's word. And that really is, in my opinion, what the act of faith is here that's being defined. It is submitting to and it's obeying God's word even when you don't like it. Even when it contradicts you. Now this happens to us all the time, right? God's word comes to us and it, and it offends our sensibilities. It contradicts us. It, it, it opposes us. It says things like this. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. Think about that for a second. Love your enemy. It says forgive those who hurt you. It says obey the legal drinking age. It says uh, sex is reserved for marriage alone. Now, when God's word comes to you like that and it, and it cuts across your sensibilities and it offends you and it contradicts you, at this point, you have a choice to make. Option one is that you can submit to the authority of God's word and obey it. And in the short term, that may feel really painful. It may even feel unbelievably unnatural. But in the long run, it's actually where you find life where you find wholeness, and you actually flourish as a human being. That's option one. Or option two, when God's word comes to you and offends you and contradicts you, you can assert your authority over it and say, I'm going to disobey it. And in the short term, it may feel great. You may get the delusion of control and power and pleasure and freedom. But in the long run, it leads to death and to decay and to a life that's deteriorating. Some of you are saying, how does that make sense? Here's how. Last semester, Christopher McDougall came to campus. He's the author who wrote Born to Run. And I was really sad. I was bummed out I didn't get to see him because I, um, I'm getting into running now and didn't get to see him. But if you read the book, uh, you're familiar that what he does in this, in, you know, describe it in this book is he goes down to this like mountain tribal group in Mexico and he comes upon these, upon these people that run these crazy distances like 75 miles. They'll like party all night long, wake up the next morning and run like 75 miles. And he's observing them and he's, and he's seeing, okay, all they're doing is putting a slim piece of rubber on the bottom of their foot. And they're running basically barefoot for crazy distances. And he also notices they're not getting any injuries. Their knees aren't hurting. Their hips aren't you know, breaking down. They're not getting any joint problems. And so he looks into it. And in this book, you know, he discovers, and his basic thesis is, that as the running shoe industry began by Nike, there also became this, this rise in runners' injuries. And the whole point of the book, really, is, is his theory, is that the running shoe provides so much support for your arch that the rest of your stride overcorrects, and you actually are running wrongly in running shoes. And so the, the, his point is that, you know, the, the, the foot is so perfectly designed that the toe and the arch absorb all the shock in and of themselves. And when you start messing with the way that God naturally designed your foot, it backfires and you injure yourself. It works the same way with God's word. God's word is, is the blueprint for your design. It is a map of reality. And so when you go against it, you not only go against God... You actually go against you. When you break God's law, you're actually breaking down yourself. Here's an example. God's word comes to you and it says, uh, forgive those who, who wound you. Forget those who hurt you. If you choose to disobey that and harbor resentment, 
then what happens is that uh, you build up bitterness towards this person who hurt you. You no longer want to trust them. You don't find them trustworthy. Uh, and the relationship basically fractures. These are all signs of life deteriorating. It's falling apart. Here's another example. Um, the Bible says, do not get drunk. And that sentence is in the Bible. Uh, and you, it, when you choose to disobey that, life actually begins to break down for you. Because what happens is you, you, uh, things happen that you wish didn't happen. Uh, you make choices and you say things and you do things that you wouldn't normally otherwise. You lose control. And this, this, this act of losing control is, is your life basically unraveling. Slowly. It's slowly unraveling. And so my point is when you break God's law, you actually start breaking down. When you break his law, you break down. When you, when you go against his word, you go against yourself. But, but what I've noticed, most students at App, the way that they get out from under this is they say, I don't think about this in terms of disobeying God's word. I think about it in terms of there are just certain parts of the Bible I don't like and that I kind of just write off and discredit as being culturally outdated. And I, I, I will choose and obey and I like these parts, but I don't like these parts and so I'm just going to write these off. As soon as you start going down this road of picking and choosing what you like and what you don't like about God's word, you no longer have a real relationship with God. But I mean, just think about it. Um, the way that I know that I have a good, loving relationship with my wife is because we fight. Let me explain. Uh, this sounds terrible, but there are times in our marriage when I wish I could perform the imperious curse from Harry Potter on my wife. If you're not familiar, the imperious curse is the curse that enables you to control the other person. And so, you know, you do your thing and you get them to do or say whatever you want them to do. And um, it is one of the unforgivable curses, though. But there are times where we'll, we'll, we'll be in an argument and I'm thinking it would be so easy if I could just wave a wand and, you know, have you say whatever I want you to say and have you do whatever I want you to do. And it'd be great. There'd be no more conflict, no more contradicting me. But, of course, there'd be no more marriage. Because I'm not relating to a real person anymore. I'm relating to a zombie under my mind control. When you pick and choose the parts of the Bible that you like and discredit and write off the parts that you don't like, what you're trying to do is you're trying to do an imperious curse on God. And you're no longer relating to a real person anymore. You're just relating to a figment of your imagination. You're relating to a God that you've crafted in your own image. If he can't contradict you, if he can't fight with you, you don't have a real relationship. And so the question is, does, does God's word have the ability to contradict you? Does it have, the, have you given it the authority to oppose you, to offend you? Or have you just disemboweled it? Because if it does offend you, if it does begin to contradict you, then you're, you're beginning to have an actual relationship with the real God of the Bible. And then the question becomes, will you obey it? Will you submit to it even if you don't like it? Because that really is what the act of faith is. It's submitting to it. It's obeying God's word even when, even when you don't like it. That's what the act of faith is. Okay, let's go a step deeper. Because I know some of you are going, but if I do that, won't that make me just this spineless slave won't the rest of my life be miserable, God just telling me what to do, and I just kind of sheepishly obeying? What is, what is the act of faith? What does a faith that's exhibited actually feel like? In other words, what, what does it look like and what does it feel like in real life? Okay, two things. Uh, two things I want you to see about Barak. On the one hand, we see unbelievable 
courage and confidence and boldness. Because remember, he's told by Deborah, I want you to go into battle and take on a much superior, larger army. And Barak says, okay, I will go. Unbelievable confidence, unbelievable courage. On the other hand, second thing, we see unbelievable humility. Because, as you remember, Deborah looks at him and says, okay, I want you to go into this battle, and what's going to happen is that the glory, even though all of the courage and the valor that you are going to have to showcase, the glory is going to go to a woman. And Barak says, okay, I will go. And he goes forward with a game plan. Now think about that for a second. Because at this point, historically, women did not participate in military campaigns. They didn't go into battle. And women were seen as socially and culturally inferior to men. What kind of a man, especially a macho military hero man, at this point historically and culturally would defer military glory and honor to a woman? It is someone who is exercising unbelievable humility. So look at those two things. Put them together. We see unbelievable courage and confidence and boldness and unbelievable humility and a lack of pride at the same time. Now, how does that work? Because if you think about it, these two things don't normally go together. Humility, if someone's humble, you may think of them as weak or as timid or as insecure, but you would never say they're confident, they're bold. And if someone's confident and bold, you would never, you know, they may be arrogant and cocky. You would never say they're humble. So how do we get both of these at the same time? Well, the way that we get both of these at the same time is we have to look at this third thing, the object of Barak's faith, the object of his faith. Because uh, let's look at this third thing. If you remember, God, through Deborah, uh, tells him the way that you will know that I am who I said I am and the way that you will know that I promised to do what I will do, that I will do what I promised to do, The way that you will know that that is true is that if you see a woman giving the death blow to Sisera, right? This is is sort of the setup. And so in verse 22, if you look at it, Barak runs up and he sees that Jael, Jael, has killed Sisera by hammering a nail into his skull. And that's the sign, right? That was the sign. And so here's the object of Barak's faith. It's twofold. It's in who God is and what God has promised to do. That's the object of his faith. It's in who God is and what God has promised to do. Let's look at each of these briefly. The object of his faith is in what is in who God is. Now, at this point, we need to take a pause because I know that most college students, and I know about myself when I was in your shoes, most college students get really confused on this point because you think that it is your faith that saves you. You think that you are saved on the basis of the intensity or the amount of your faith. And that's not true. You are not saved on the basis of your, of your faith. The thing that doesn't save you is not your faith. It's the object of your faith. So think about it like this. I've told this illustration before, uh, so it may be familiar to some of y'all. Picture you have two guys that are standing in front of a frozen river, and they need to get across. One guy goes, oh, I know this area. I've been here a million times. I know how deep the the river is. Uh, I know how cold it is, so I know how thick the ice is. And I'm totally confident I'm going to get across. And so he runs across to the other side, and he makes it. The second guy goes, "Uh, I've never been here before. I I don't know this place. I'm kind of freaking out. And I don't know, maybe he cracked the ice when he ran across. So he's very timid. 
But he steps out and he walks across to the other side. And they both make it. Now let's say you had a conversation with them after the fact and you said, oh, you, you, know, you made it across that frozen river. That's awesome. And uh, they say, I know, wasn't it so great? Our faith is what got us across. Uh, it was our faith that prevented us from falling in the river. You'd say, it wasn't your faith. It, it, it had nothing to do with your faith. It had everything to do with the thickness of the ice. It didn't have anything to do with your faith because you, you had this huge, really confident faith. You had this really weak, timid faith. And you both made it because you aren't saved on the basis of your faith. You're saved on the object of your faith. The thickness of the ice. Weak faith in a strong Savior will save you. Strong faith in a weak Savior will never save you. And so the question is not how big is your faith? How much faith do you have? The question is, what is your faith in? What is the object of your faith in? Where where are you banking all of your hopes and all of your dreams? Is it in uh, a good career? Is it in finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright? Is it in, you know, coming, coming into financial security? If you put your faith in anything other than the God of the Bible, you will fall through. It will not hold you. You, you will not be saved. It's the object of your faith that saves you. Weak faith in a strong Savior will save you. Strong faith. You may have really strong, genuine faith, but if it's in a weak Savior, you won't be saved. That's the first thing. Is who, is it the, his, the object of his faith is in who God is, and the second thing is in what God has promised that he would do and what God has actually done. When Barak comes upon the scene and he sees Sisera laying there with you know, a tent peg sticking out of his face, what do you think he was thinking? I think he was probably thinking two things at the same time. On the one hand, he was probably thinking, I'm very relieved and I'm very assured that God is committed to his people. God is committed to saving his people. And, on this, and I think the second thing that Barak was thinking would be this. That should be me. Here's why. Remember at the beginning of the story, it says that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Barak is an Israelite. He's contributing to the evil. He is culpable. He is guilty. And what, what he comes upon is he comes upon this picture, this graphic image of this dead man, and him thinking... That man just received what I deserved and what all of my people deserved. Did I deserve that? Yes. Did I get that? No. I got grace instead. And so that picture of this man with a nail hammered into his body is a picture of God's grace. Centuries later, a nail is being hammered into another person's body. Jesus is being hammered to a cross to hang there and to bleed and to suffocate And to die. And that is a graphic picture, but it is a graphic picture of God's grace. Because what it is, it's God in His kindness saying, I will not give you what you deserve, but I will allow for a substitute. And so what Jesus does is He comes and He wraps Himself up in all of our disobedience, all the ways that we disobey God's law, all the way that we disobey God's word, all of our failures, all of our flaws, all of our brokenness. He wraps Himself in it and He receives the hammer on the cross instead of us. When your faith becomes who God is and what God has done, that is what transforms you from the inside out. And that is what gives you this unbelievable humility and this unbelievable confidence at the same time. Here's how. Let me just explain it and then we'll be done. When you say, uh, I am 
I am so sinful and I'm so messed up that Jesus had to die for me, this is what gives you unbelievable humility, right? I mean, you can no longer feel superior to anyone anymore. It totally undermines your pride. You can no longer look down your nose at anybody. What the cross does is it comes to you and it totally deconstructs you. It says, I... I have nothing, and my only hope is to rely on the mercy of God. I'm that messed up. On the other hand, the cross looks at you and it says, you are so loved and you are so treasured that Jesus was glad to die for you. And when you see that, that's what gives you the confidence. That's what gives you the boldness and the courage. Because you, you, you say, okay, now I, I, don't have to, I, don't, I no longer have to live for anybody else's approval. I no longer have to live for, for anybody else to like me. I, can, I, I have a confidence and a boldness that was never there before. Both of these at the same time. Humility and confidence. And how do you get it? The only way that you get it is the gospel of grace. The only way that you get humility and confidence at the same time is the gospel of grace. So how do you get the gospel of grace? It's by faith. And what that means is that you come to God, even if your faith is weak, even if you have doubts, even if you are thinking, okay, I don't know if I've worked out all this Christianity stuff. I don't know what I think about this. I don't know what I think about this. But all I know is I want you, and I need a substitute. And even if your faith is weak, he receives you. He receives you. You come to him with nothing, nothing in your hands, and he gives you everything. And that really is the invitation I want to leave you with tonight. Are you coming to God? Will you come to God with nothing and as a result of Jesus receive everything? That's the invitation. Let me pray. Father, we um, would ask for faith. For some of us in here, we are processing and we have doubts and we have questions and we don't know what to think about all this stuff. But Father, would you give us faith? Even me, even, even someone who stands up front is supposed to be uh, a pastor. Father, would you give me faith to trust in you, to, to, to see how good you are, how merciful you are, the way that you have loved us, the way that you have cared for us, the way that you have given Jesus what we deserved, and the way that you've given us what he deserved. Father, enable us to come before you uh, by faith, and um, that would be our prayer. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.